Welcome to Poems for People Who Hate Poetry, with your host, Kirk Barbera. Everyday Conversations with Life-Altering Poems. Fog and night and turbulence were no problem to the mail carrier soaring through the air one dark night in 1926. Man-operated flight was still in its infancy, but a few men had forged ahead. Some had distinguished themselves through dangerous wartime missions, while others through dangerous peacetime missions. The mail carrier was one of the latter sort. As he flew his mail route between St. Louis and Chicago, his mind began to wander. He thought of the big challenge left in aviation. All the best pilots in the world were attempting to be the first to accomplish it. There was even a prize, the 25,000 Ortega Prize. To win it required flying from New York to Paris, nonstop, over the Atlantic. In a flash, he had an idea, this mail carrier. He would win the Ortega Prize. And he knew that the other pilots were playing it safe with their big old three-engine planes. But these were heavy and mechanically challenging. He would choose a light, simple, cheap plane. He would be the first man to cross the Atlantic nonstop. And he would do it with a single-engine plane. There was only one problem, or three to be precise. He had no plane, no supporters, and no money. He was 24 years old, and though he was a great stunt pilot with experience flying long stretches at night, no one at this time knew the name of Charles Lindbergh. So this is a little excerpt from an article I wrote a while back about Charles Lindbergh. It's titled, No Money, No Supporters, No Problem, Strategically Building Credit, the Credibility Gap. And uh, the story of Charles Lindbergh is very interesting. Today, we're going to focus on an element that I didn't talk about in that uh, story that I wrote, and the element is the element of faith. Now, in this podcast, Poems for People Who Hate Poetry, I've in the past talked about Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, and why there are several poems and numerous uh, instances where he talks about poetry in his work. Why is this book that is all about making money, getting rich, becoming wealthy, leading you know a, a life of success, why is there so much poetry and literature in this book? Chapter 3 is called Faith Visualization of and Belief in an uh, Attainment of Desire. Now, this comes, this is basically the second principle in uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, the principles of what it takes to lead a successfully wealthy life, in particular, how do you achieve that? And his first principle is desire, is that you need to have a very definite starting point. He recommends, for instance, having a what he calls a definite chief aim, and this is a specific goal. You know, he puts it in terms of money. Write down, for instance, I want fifty thousand. This is nineteen thirties. I want fifty thousand uh, dollars in the next two years, and you write that down, 
and you read it out loud. So what we're going to talk about is the poem in the chapter three, Faith Visualization of and Belief in the Attainment of Desire. He has a poem that is about something very important related to Charles Lindbergh. You see, Charles had to have a lot of faith. He had to have a lot of faith, or he had to have a belief in his own abilities. He had to believe that he had the mechanical know-how, the courage, the strength, the ability to sustain himself over the course of this entire trip to make this long-distance flight across the Atlantic. And if you think about it, it's pretty scary. While there have been, at at this point in history, there were people who had uh, flown that same distance over land, but nobody had done it over an ocean. And it's pretty scary. Plus, you know, there's different, you know, you're dealing with different storm fronts and everything when you're over an ocean versus over land. You know, this is a very, this is uncharted territory. And everyone who had tried it was unable to do it. And they had so many safety nets, the biggest being three engines. That's a big deal because that makes the plane way heavier, of course. Charles Lindbergh's idea was to have one engine. And that is scary. Imagine going out alone over the Atlantic for the first time in history and doing it with a single engine. If something goes wrong, you're done for. That's it. This is a a very brave act that this individual did, and we need to understand why he had the faith at 24 to believe in himself. Because the question that I think Napoleon Hill does not, or he vaguely suggests on how to do this, but doesn't really go into the details on how you could do this is, what if you're not Lucky Lindy? You know, Lucky Lindy, you know, Charles Lindbergh, he was named Lucky Lindy, he was the son of a congressman. What if he grew up in a great environment where everything was honky-dory and everything was amazing? And what if you didn't? What if you're unlucky Cindy? What if you're unlucky Ricky? How do you develop faith in yourself, in your own abilities? How can you change the state of your mind from one of negative and uh, you can't do it or it's not possible for someone like you or you're not good enough or you don't have the talents to someone who starts building the confidence that you can figure it out, that you have what it takes, that you can learn it. This is what Napoleon Hill called the power of auto-suggestion. And we're going to converse with a verse and go into a little bit detail of what he calls the law of auto-suggestion. All the implications involved in this and why it happens. But first, you're going to listen to a poem. Very short. It's four short stanzas. I think you're going to enjoy it. There's no words that you need to you know, know. It's very basic. And it's in chapter three of Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. So stick around for the poem in Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it is almost certain you won't. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. For out of the world we find, success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. 
If you think you are outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but soon or late, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. Napoleon Hill says that Just as electricity will turn the wheels of industry and render useful service if used constructively, or snuff out life if used wrongly, so will the the law of auto-suggestion lead you to peace and prosperity or down into the valley of misery, failure, and death. That's a pretty bold statement. And the the question is, what exactly is the law of auto-suggestion? How does it work? And then how can you make sure that you're not leading yourself down to the valley of death and failure and misery? That's obviously not where we want to go. He does have uh, an interesting quote. Let me find this here. When men first come into contact with crime, they abort. If they remain in contact with crime for a time, they become accustomed to it and endure it. If they remain in contact with it long enough, they finally embrace it and become influenced by it. So he talks a lot about this kind of influence. And for him, you know, he wants to teach you how to develop faith. And in the context he's talking about, he's not talking about specifically, you know, belief in a religious deity, although he would definitely be for that. But he's talking about an earthly faith, a faith in your abilities to enact your actions successfully on earth. I want to fly from New York to Paris, even though no one's ever done it, on a single engine plane. That requires a certain type of faith, a belief in yourself. I want to start a business. I want to quit my job in a safe environment and try my my hand as a real estate investor. I want to write a book. I want to be an artist. I want to paint. I want to sing songs. I want to be a comedian. I want to be a construction developer. Whatever it is that you want to do, I want to be a race car driver. I want to build cars. I want to invent things. Whatever it is. It takes a certain level of faith to try something new, to jump out of the ordinary that you're used to. The way Napoleon Hill defines it is, faith is a state of mind which may be induced or created by affirmation or repeated instructions to the subconscious mind through the principle of auto-suggestion. So what he's saying is you need to constantly be reading uh, in, you know, out loud your, de- your definite aim, your basic principles. He gives you, um, let me find it here, he gives you self-confidence formula. And this is five steps that you need to be reading out loud. He even recommends that you memorize it to help you increase your self-confidence. Now, all of this is to say that he's trying to say you need to program your subconscious. Because here's the thing. Your subconscious will be programmed one way or the other. It's either going to be programmed by your parents, their parents, your friends, 
the television that you watch, the movies that you watch, the radio shows, the podcasts you listen to, especially this one, it, you know, the, the church members, the, the, your pastor, your girlfriend, your ex-girlfriends, your wife, your, uh, you know, uncles, everybody, you know, programs your subconscious for good or for ill. What Napoleon Hill is suggesting, although I think he could go a little bit further, but that's maybe not the scope of this book that he's going for. But what Napoleon Hill is suggesting suggesting is that you program your own subconscious. And he, he makes the point that your subconscious dictates the kind of actions you're willing to take. Charles Lindbergh would not have tried to do what he did had he not enough of a strong faith or a state of mind that believed that he could on some level accomplish this impossible task. The Wright brothers are another great example of this. David McCullough did a great uh, biography. It's a very short biography, uh, as biographies go. But it's very um, focused on a particular point in their lives when they were trying to invent the airplane. And the great thing about this is that he, David McCullough, shows all the beliefs, the wrong views, the, the horrible idea about how impossible it was to fly during the time of the Wright brothers. It was a ludicrous endeavor. And yet they somehow had the courage to do it. Where did that come from? Well, David McCullough gives some indications. They were big readers of literature. They were big readers of history. Their father was a big believer in the Enlightenment and studying outside of your field. When the Wright brothers came to you know, become interested in this idea of flight, it actually came through the study of birds, so they studied birds, and they become fascinated with it. And the other people who studied birds, uh, you know, you might see pictures of men who had developed contraptions in the 19th century, and really through all of history. This was the way, this is one of the dominant ways that people would try to fly, was they would strap big wings on and jump off a cliff or jump off a, you know, a house. And it became so ludicrous that there was poetry about how little, how uh, stupid these men were to try to fly. It became a, a laughing joke if you tried to fly because it was just ludicrous. And this is the, the world that the Wright brothers were operating in. And so what they decided to do was to pursue it anyway. And the question is why? Well, one, they had a big, great, amazing psychology, a state of mind that believed that they could do it. There's another uh, Napoleon Hill idea that the mind uh, uh, dominated by positive emotions as the you know, dominant forces of your mind uh, discourages and eliminates negative emotions. We are what we are because of the vibrations of thought, which we pick up and register through the stimuli of our environment. And the environment that they grew up in, by chance, was once surrounded by books, intelligent discourse, and scientific inquiry, as well as a kind of a higher moral literary standpoint of, of reading the, the myths and the, the uh, as well as the Bible, but and, and as well as the uh, you know, other great literature of their time and bef- you know, throughout all of history. But these are the vibrations, as Napoleon Hill calls them, the, uh, you know, the, the thoughts, the ideas, the words, which has sound to them, that were 
entering into the mind of the Wright brothers. And so when the time came, you know, they studied birds and they studied what was going on, how other people were trying to fly. And they took the best parts. They took the ideas. They read all the books of the, everybody that had ever written anything about flight, man-operated flight. And we're talking about what they were really interested in was heavier-than-air-operated flight. So it's not just having some feathers that kind of could help you float, but something that was a piece of metal in the sky. And that was an impossible thought. But they took all the ideas, and they learned, and they studied, and they, they always believed that they could do it. They always believed that this was possible. They always had a state of mind. They had the self-confidence formula before there was a, a, a self-confidence formula of how to do this. And they did it because of the power of auto-suggestion. Now, this poem is a, that I read earlier is a very, very simple poem. There's not even a lot to really converse with. The first stanza is, if you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost certain you won't. That is a pretty simple idea. It's just simply this whole poem is about the state of mind you need to be in. And one way to think about it is, there has never been a human who succeeded who didn't think he could. Even if there's another element, so let's say you have a big, strong, sturdy man who's able to uh, you know, fight off the enemy, he believes that he can win that, that fight, that war. Now, so does the enemy. So my point is, though, that you, the person who definitely loses is the man in that army who thinks he's going to lose. So I hope that makes sense. You have two sides. They both believe that they can win. They both think that they can win but only one can. But the, the fundamental truth is that your first step is to have the state of mind that you believe you can win, even if it doesn't necessarily happen. And this is a weird one to wrap your head around, but you need to have that as the first step. And this is actually Napoleon Hill's second step to wealth, I believe. I believe it's a step, second step. Give me one second. Let me check. The second step toward riches faith visualization of and belief in attainment of desire. That, that's it, is the belief in the attainment of your desire. So first step is you have a definite desire. I want to cross the Atlantic with a single-engine plane and win the Orteg Prize for $25,000. And then you need to have a belief, a faith, as, he, as Napoleon Hill puts it, that you can actually accomplish that, that you have what it takes to pull that off. So that's what this this uh, poem is about. If you this is the second stanza. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. For out of the world we find success begins with the fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. Now this is a poem, and and it's not um, you know, and it's a, kind of a simple poem. It's a cool poem that I like, but I would disagree with the statement that it's all in the state of mind. There's other things. There's other factors. Uh, that go into it, such as your mind's ability to accept and to face and to integrate reality. Because it's not just mind-oriented, it's also your mind's ability to see the world and to adjust accordingly. So it's not as though Charles Lindbergh, for instance, simply sat around with a very positive state of mind, like quote-unquote, the book The Secret, and then suddenly somehow got money, got a plane, and made his you know, famous trip. No. He took action. But the point that Hill is trying to make is that you know, it's not really literally that it's all in the state of mind, but that that's the starting point. That you have to, you know, this 
second step you take, once you make that first step, according to Napoleon Hill, of having a desire, you need to believe that you can do it. You know, I would amend, it's not all in the state of mind, it's, a, you know, it starts with the right state of mind. That's how I would amend that second, uh, that second stanza, but the problem is that then it wouldn't be a very good poem because it wouldn't rhyme very well. You know, just as a little bit of a background for how more than the state of mind is what Lucky Lindy did, is he went around to local business people, including a man by the name of Earl Thompson, um, trying to encourage them to support his idea to go on this trip. But Earl Thompson said no. But Lindbergh didn't stop. He kept going, and he met a man by the name of Major Lambert, who owned the St. Louis airport. And Lambert was a kind of a courageous pioneer like Lindbergh. Uh, he himself, Lambert, had flown with Orville Wright early on in the you know days of, of flight, and he told Lucky Lindy that if he could find more supporters, he would provide him with a thousand dollars. And then that was the catalyst to getting more supporters because now uh, Lindbergh went around to all these business people and said, "Hey." Uh, Major Lambert, who was well respected, very credible, everybody knew him. He flew with Orville Wright. He, you know, owned the St. Louis uh, airport. And Charles Lindbergh could go around to like Bill Robertson and all these different places, all these different business people at his time, and say, "Hey, I have uh, a, the word of Major Lambert that he's going to back me up on this flight. He's going to give me a thousand dollars, but I need your support. Would you support me?" And everyone said yes because they had Major Lambert now. Charles Lindbergh took action to make this happen. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of other things that needed to happen. Charles Lindbergh, for instance, had to get his team, which Major Lambert was the first person on the team to help, or at least to support her. And then Lindbergh went out, got these people on his team. He succeeded to do that. And then they went to the right corporation, which made planes, of course. And, um, they, you know, started looking for a plane, what kind of, not just a plane, but a builder who would help them build the kind of plane they would need to succeed. You know, it wasn't like you just went to amazon.com, typed in airplane and boom, found a single engine airplane. They had to go to the person, find the right person who could make it. And then that was a hassle all in and of itself. And then they had to raise enough money to actually, um, you know, buy the plane, which ended up being $15,000. So they accomplished that and, you know, so on and so forth. And eventually he flew. But the point is it started with the state with one, it started with a definite desire to win the Ortega prize. Step two, he had to have faith in doing this. And then if you read the rest of Napoleon Hill, there's other things that Charles Lindbergh did that's related. For instance, he was persistent, which is one of the other principles later on down the line. You know, he had a mastermind group which when he at some one point during this time of uh, trying to go trying to make this flight he wanted to quit himself but because he had developed the right group of people around him early on they helped him conv- you know reconvince him or reinspire him when they had hit so many hurdles he wanted to give up so his mastermind led him or helped him to succeed you know uh, the seventh step toward riches decision the mastery of procrastination he had made a decision to specifically win is a very specific concrete action not just to cross the atlantic but to win the prize so that was very helpful because that gave him a timeline that there's a race so it, it you know bolstered him up and made him go faster and faster and faster so anyway if you go through charles Lindbergh's story you'll see that it coincides with every single one of the uh, steps towards riches, every single one. 
but it starts with the state of mind. So the third stanza, if you think you are outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. How appropriate to win a prize. This, too, coincides perfectly with Charles Lindbergh. There was a man by the name of Levine, who at first, um, he was going to sell and work with Charles Lindbergh on this plane to help Charles Lindbergh, who again was a stunt pilot and he had experience, Levine was not. It was gonna, so he was going to help Lindbergh make this historic flight. But at the last second, Levine changed everything and said, I will help you with this plane, but I'm going to be the one to fly. And Lindbergh said no. And this is, by the way, when he becomes despondent and his team supports him. But, you know, through a, a mixture of persistence, he eventually began to, began to believe in himself again. He went after it, even though he lost the support of um, Levine. And Lindbergh went out looking for another person who could sell, who could sell him a plane. So Charles Lindbergh found a, an obscure company called Ryanair, which was as unknown as Lindbergh, and they sold Lindbergh a single-engine plane for actually cheaper than he would have gotten it from Levine. And Levine, during this time, while Charles Lindbergh is going out there and believing in himself and making sure that he's going to acquire and win this prize, and he's never giving up, his team's not letting him give up, Levine is going around and talking about how amazing his team is, how he's got all these great things, how he came up with this amazing idea to go across in a single engine plane, which is what has, which is the only way to do it, um, you know, at this moment and actually succeed because the triple angel engine planes were always not, were too heavy to make it that far. So he stole Lindbergh's idea and he gave it himself the credit, but Lindbergh didn't quit, even though he might have felt outclassed, which to some degrees, degree he was from a money and a, a support and a having a plane standpoint, he was. But Lindbergh didn't give up and he kept pursuing, he kept pushing. And eventually, all this press and some of the other things that Levine did kind of backfired on him. You know, the, the pilots, for instance, Levine trained two pilots and he made sure that when they designed and developed and worked on the plane he was going to use, that they had two seats for two people, one for the pilot, one for Levine, because he had such hubris. He was so arrogant. He had to be on the flight, even though he wasn't a pilot, especially not a pilot to the degree of a Lindbergh, who remember was a stunt pilot. He was a mail carrier. This is all he did. Whereas Levine was more of a, a business person, which is great. He's a great business person, but he's not a pilot, right? So, you know, and uh, Levine trained two, he prepared two pilots. Now, what ended up happening was at the, the last minute, as Lindbergh is lifting off, finally getting everything going, you know, there's many obstacles that got on the way, but he finally lifts off to go on his historic flight. And he, Levine is at that time arguing with his pilots 
the mechanic quit because there was too much press and, and, you know, and the press were saying how great Levine was and no one else had anything to do with it, even though the mechanic and the, the engineers were the ones who actually built the plane for him. But Levine never mentioned anything about them. The pilots were furious because they both wanted to go on the flight and they were fighting over it because they said, I am the one who trained as equally as that person. Why should I, he, you know, uh, go and not me? So basically everything collapsed. Levine was really late. And the ironic part of history is that when Levine finally got everything together and finally lifted off into space, he actually cross was crossing the Atlantic as Charles Lindbergh's celebra- celebratory ship was uh, floating back. So basically Levine flies over Lindbergh as Lindbergh's flying back on his celebration for having been the first person to fly solo over the Atlantic. That's that's one of those great little ironies of history that I love. But the point is, you've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize, even if you think you're outclassed. The last stanza, life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but sooner or late, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. And if you watch like the Rocky Balboa movies or any, anything like that, you'll see that there's, that's a pretty strong strain in that belief, you know, in his belief system that he, even if he ties or loses about, Rocky always believes that he can and he's going to put his absolute ultimate best into going and he thinks he can. And this is the, the essential uh, formula for success is having that state. Now, the question, again, that I've kind of alluded to, but I wanted to finish up and talking about and kind of give you some indications on how you can do this is how to induce faith in yourself. Here's what uh, Napoleon Hill says. Any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. Now, I wanted to bring up something interesting here of the power of chanting, mantras, singing, memorization, how it becomes uh, its role and how it shapes our subconscious for good or for ill. Remember what Napoleon Hill said about crime? If you're a child raised in crime, you know, the first time you see a thief, it's not a big deal. The second time you see something bad happen, it's not, it's, you know, or, or excuse me, the first time you see it, it's kind of a big deal. Second time, it's not a big deal. The third time, it's not, it's less and less and less. And then as you see more and more and more, you become more acclimated to it and you become to see that that is the world. Like your subconscious essentially uh, molds around that view of, the entire world and, and how everything works, that crime pays, essentially. And you start to think it's okay, because your subconscious mind shapes you as a person. And so the, the things that are repeatedly impinging on your mind, you know, bad people, bad words, bad thoughts, negativity, complaining on a, an extreme level, all those things shape you as they infringe on your subconscious mind. But the positive, the opposite is true as well. If you can impose the right thoughts, the right beliefs, the right actions, the right thoughts, then that will 
you know, influence you to become that type of person. So one of the things that Napoleon Hill talks about is to write out or to have uh, an imaginary board of advisors to read biographies, which is, you know, again, influencing your subconscious mind by putting in what he would call vibrations from the infinite intelligence, what I would call thoughts (laughs) um, from, you know, the other thinkers, other people, and have this board of imaginary advisor where you Basically, put people that you want to be like. You know, whether if you want to be like inventor, put like an Edison up there. If you want to be a statesman, put like uh, um, an Abraham Lincoln, or put anybody who inspires you. Walt Disney or Joe DiMaggio. I don't care who it is. Put the people you that inspire you on this imaginary board, and then read their biographies so you really understand them. And then every day, think about how the type of person you want to become, and. Do this for, Napoleon Hill says, for 30 minutes every day. Imagine the type of person you want to become. And then he recommends reading the uh, or the self-confidence formula by memorizing it every day. Here's how he, here's one of the, the most important self-confidence formula step that I, I think is the most important. It's the second one. And he says, I realize the dominating thoughts of my mind will eventually reproduce themselves in outward physical action, and gradually transform themselves into physical reality. Therefore, I will concentrate my thoughts for 30 minutes daily upon the task of thinking of the person I intend to become, thereby creating in my mind a clear mental picture of that person. We've talked about things, you know, of uh, Charles Lindbergh, starting point of desire, the Ortigue Prize, having faith that he can do it, overcoming it, And most important, the way to develop faith, the way to put faith into your mind, the way to take yourself, if you grew up in a bad environment with bad influences impringing on your mind, the way out of that, or one of the ways out of that, is auto-suggestion. But the question is, what will you auto-suggest, or what will you suggest automatically? And I am recommending poetry. Memorize some poetry. Poetry is one of the easiest things to memorize because it rhymes, because there's a rhythm to it. So it's like a song. So you can think of it, if you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost certain you won't, and yada, yada, yada. So that's one way to do it. And if you think about um, this suggestion element, so there's the auto element, which I recommend memorizing and reading it every morning or getting, you know, if you have a partner or a friend or someone talking to them and telling them that you did spend 30 minutes reading out loud your um, whatever it is that you're trying to shape your mind with. Maybe it's five poems. That's the auto part. The suggestion part is a little bit interesting. The question then becomes, what should, should you suggest into your mind? I brought up chanting, mantras, singing, memorizing, and all those things for a reason. And that's because one thing you can learn from church is how powerful the power of suggestion is. It's not a coincidence that every church requires, if you go into it, it requires a strong word for a free country like America where you don't literally require it. But historically, you were required to do this kind of thing where you had to stand up or in the case of, let's say, the Muslim um, 
the, the Muslim tradition, you have to kneel or what's called kowtowing all the way down, head to the ground and pray and say, you know, certain words. And there's certain words that they impinge in your subconscious five times a day. Muslims take this very seriously. Uh, Christian, you know, this is probably one of the differences why Muslims are true believers in something. Christians are always going to be less believers because they don't do this as much. Right? It's encouraged and Catholicism encourages it more than, you know, free-forming Christianity of different forms. Where it's free, you know, Christianity, it's mostly just go on Sunday and, and we'll chant a little bit here. But that, that's a new idea, even in Christianity. It used to be that you were a little bit more like the Muslim, and you had to pray several times a day. But what that does, what the praying in church even does on Sundays today in 2017, is it imposes, it puts into your mind, it shapes your subconscious with the quote-unquote vibrations of sound, or the thoughts and the ways of action that you should be acting the way you should be acting according to the church. I that I am fine with that and you can you know shape your mind, you can program your subconscious in any way that you want. My only thing is that I'm all I'm saying is be conscious of how you're doing it. Otherwise other people are, are programming your mind. Is that really what you want? Do you want other people to incur- to program your mind or do you want to at least have control over it? And this is where poetry, literature, reading can really come in handy because here you can um you know, you can kind of program your mind your own way. You can choose the things that you read. You could read a whole bunch of poetry, only like one or two things Take those two things, print those two poems, print them out, and read them every day. I have about a dozen poems that I've memorized at this point, and I'll pull some out all the time, you know, even though I do this podcast, which makes it a little bit unique for me, I think. But the the point is that this is a practice I've been doing for quite a long time since I started, well, quite a long time, like four years now since I fell in love with poetry. And it's been life changing. It's changed my whole perception of reality and how my abilities to accomplish certain activities and desires. That's your converse with verse for today. And I wanted to just bring it home, bring, you know, wrap it all up in the, you know, with what Charles Lindbergh, what we can learn from auto suggestion, what we can learn from faith, faith, even though I don't believe in a supernatural faith, I do believe in the kind of faith that's a belief in your own abilities. But the last thing I, I really think needs to be said is that faith in and of itself, even of yourself, isn't enough. You have to prove it by taking action. So Charles Lindbergh, for instance, was not just a, a random person. He was a stunt pilot. He had flown long stretches of time uh, at night by himself over and over and over again, whereas Levine merely had faith or hubris or arrogance in him, a belief in himself that's bordered on the absurd. And that's why he failed. That's why he failed, and that's why Charles Lindbergh succeeded. You know, so part of the element of what I think Napoleon Hill misses is that element of facing reality. It's not just about belief. The next step is taking action and adjusting according to what occurs and being able to have a flexible, intelligent mind that can do that. That's your conversation with verse. 
I hope you like that. If you wanted me to talk about a poem that you like, just email me at kirkbarbera at gmail.com and I'll reach back out to you as soon as I can. Tell me the poem you like. Um, tell me why you like it. And you know, stay tuned for new episodes coming up where I will be interviewing regular people, engineers, teachers, not academic poets or academic you know, philosophy of professor, uh, you know, in, in, uh, or literature professors or anything like that. Just normal everyday people talking about poems and how they have life altering effects on them. So my name is Kirk Barbera and I'll talk to you next time.